listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward as we all work together to solve the greatest challenge one in ten of our children face, child abuse. Today's episode is about the bystander effect, why people don't report child abuse, and how to make sure they do. We've all read media accounts of a horrific child abuse case and ask ourselves the question, how could the family or the neighbors or school personnel not know what was happening? Or we've read accounts in which it was clear that the others did know, had to know, and never reported the abuse. In today's episode, we explore those dynamics, why people can see something going horribly wrong in a family and fail to take action. I chatted with Dr. Wendy Walsh, Research Assistant Professor of Sociology at the Crimes Against Children's Research Center at the University of New Hampshire, and we also discussed the implications of her research on what proactive steps we can take to encourage the public to intervene and report abuse. Wendy, thanks for joining the program. Glad to be here, Teresa. So let me just ask you this. You know, I have known you for a while now, but I knew you after you were already very interested in the work of children's advocacy centers. How did you begin researching them and the kinds of issues that they work on? Well, it was kind of uh, being in the right spot in the right time. I was working on my PhD at the Crimes Against Children Research Center, and it was at a very exciting point where... Ted Cross and Lisa Jones uh, and David Finkelhor and I were just starting to think about um, how can we explore this CAC initiative that was kind of exploding across the country. And the more I learned about them, the more fascinated I was because they're so unique. If you look at um, other types of agencies that explore crime victimization. CACs are really unique because they bring so many professionals together and try to work collaboratively. And so it really piqued my interest to really explore this this concept further. And I've uh, I've managed to do that over over the past about 20 years now. So um, just the innovative aspect of them, and just like I said, it was being in the right place at the right time. Also, well, you know. CCs do continue to really evolve, and one of the things that they've become so much more active in over the last few years has been child abuse prevention, not just community awareness efforts, but um, and, and not only tertiary prevention after something's happened, but really trying to also prevent it in the first place. And in doing so, you know, I think one of the things that really frustrates us as child abuse professionals is You know, you'll see a media report about uh, a story of child abuse that's horrific or uh, child abuse fatality. And often it goes something like this. You know, they'll report this longstanding awful abuse. And then there will be interviews of the neighbors who often go, well, you know, I always thought Mm -hmm. there was something off about that family. And you start thinking about these kids who, in many cases, were, in fact, going to school. Some of them were seeing physicians. Some of them certainly had neighbors that they were interacting with or others. And I think one of the things, one of the questions that we just have is, 
you know, how is it that no one in these children's lives um, took a moment to report suspected abuse, even if they didn't know it? Why did no one speak up and sort of raise the alarm that something could potentially be wrong in this family? And, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Why do you think that people are not quick to report abuse, even when they know it's occurring? Mm-hmm. Well, it is It is frustrating when you hear stories like that. Um, a few years ago, we conducted a study to explore this issue and specifically to examine does the public, are they aware of policies? You know, because you could make the case if people don't know what they should do, if they don't know that they're supposed to call and they need to know who are who who do they who should they call if they're concerned. Um, but people need to be aware of what the laws are. So we conducted this study um, in a state that does have a mandatory reporting law. So uh, 19 states do have laws that say, okay, every adult is mandated to report, you know, concerns about child abuse. And we included a number of questions to ask the public about just this just this issue about. What, what would be some barriers if they were concerned about something? What are some barriers? Um, and we had some very interesting findings um, that I actually was really quite surprised about. Uh, one of the findings was we just wanted to know, do people know that there are mandata- mandatory reporters in this state? And 39% of the respondents uh, we're not aware that everyone in this state was a mandated reporter. So that is a little bit alarming, right? So they don't, people don't even know what they should be doing. So that's one barrier that people need to understand the laws, right? I mean, you can't, you can't act on them if you don't know that mm-hmm. you're supposed to call mm-hmm. somebody. Um, but kind of what was even more intriguing, when we asked people about barriers you know, because we thought, okay, people are going to say, oh, you know, it's, you know, my neighbor's neighbor, you know, I don't want to get involved in that situation. It's just kind of not my business. And that's why I didn't call. I was going to wait for the school to call, you know, the church, someone else to call. Um, But what we found is that when we asked about barriers, most respondents rated really worries that reporting was not going to help the victim. And they rated those barriers even higher than their own discomfort intervening in another family's activity. So that was really um, quite remarkable when you think about it. So when do you, you know, I, I want to, I'm so fascinated by this and just kind of want to unpack each sure. one of those. When you think about the 39% who had no earthly yeah, idea, yeah. they were even mandatory reporters, which, you know, that is alarming. Um, I, I, I'm thinking of the last time I saw um, something sponsored by state government that told people they should report child mm-hmm. abuse. Yeah. You know, billboards, that kind of thing. I can't even remember the last time. You know, our CACs are out there, you know, having bake sales so they can do that work. But I, I cannot honestly remember that. And I just wonder, you know, if, if that is – if that's common, that – in, in many states, the folks who are mandatory reporters either don't know they are, or there certainly aren't those kinds of official, which people might take more seriously, right. government messages right. that it's required. Right. No, and that's very true. There's extremely few public awareness campaigns about just how important it is to report suspicions, um, you know, to to an agency. Um, and what's, what's also interesting is that the study that we did was actually the first study in 30 years to assess 
knowledge about child abuse reporting. So that is also remarkable. We don't have um, public awareness campaigns. We have very little research exploring and researching this and also evaluating states have different policies. There's really a huge gap in research, ex, ex, you know, exploring, do they make a difference? Do different policies mm -hmm. make a difference? Mm -hmm. So that's somewhere where I'd like to see uh, much more research um, focused on that as well. Well, and what's worrisome is, you know, um, you all did that study a few right. years ago, but I doubt if anybody's followed it up. Do you know? I, I mean, know. I doubt if that, that it's been replicated in I other know. states. So I think I we're probably facing the same um, research questions. The other thing that I remember about the study that sort of stuck in my yeah. mind at the time is, if I'm remembering it correctly, this question about sort of the bystander effect, right. the you know discomfort that people might feel, that there were some generational differences in that data. Right. Is that yes, right? there were. And we did find, you know, not too surprisingly that um, older participants um, did rate, you know, this concern that they would be intervening in another family's activities higher than, than younger um, participants. And so it does um, suggest that there is a need to perhaps educate certain, you know, aspects of the population, older um, adults. And even now where older adults are, you know, there's a higher percentage of grandparents taking care of kids. So it is alarm. It is kind of concerning that um, older participants were even less aware of some of, of these child abuse reporting policies. It'd be so interesting to see the study also, um, or, or something similar, replicated um, now that we're post sort of the Me Too movement, <laughs> exactly. because I wonder, you know, yeah. if, if awareness has been heightened in a different way about whose business exactly. it is really to intervene mm -hmm. when we see these kinds of things. But, it, but it's also heartening to me that millennials, which I think sometimes do get a bad <laughs> rap, in this case, the data is great yeah. about them. You yeah. know, they're the they're quick to pick up the phone. They don't feel like it's none of their it's business. True. They seem to have this community minded sense that you'd want to see on this issue. Exactly. That's a really good point. So on that last point, though, which I thought was, I totally agree with you. It was the most interesting finding of the mm -hmm. whole thing, which was that people really do worry that if they make a report, a child's life is going to be made infinitely worse, essentially, instead of better. Were there any insights into what was at the heart of that? Well, what, what their core concern yes, was? Yes, it was really fascinating and surprising. I was just so surprised that the majority of participants, um, actually it was quite high, it was 71% mistakenly believed that children were automatically taken out of their homes um, if, you know, maltreatment came to the attention of authority. So it kind of makes sense. If you think that's going to be the consequence of your call, you might be more reluctant to make that call. And, and we know that that is not the case. I mean, a minority of children are actually removed, and we know that professionals do a lot to ensure that a child can remain in a safe environment. So, but people do not understand that. And it, you know, you think about you pick up a paper and you see, you know, this horrible situation profiled where you know a child was removed, and so people just assume that that's that's the norm when it isn't when it isn't the norm. So we think part of that is behind some of the um, concerns about. You know, it's not going to make a difference if they call. Um, and also, I mean, it really suggests that we need to, not only do I think we need just general public awareness campaigns, 
but also just more en- more education about you know what happens when 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 you make that report people don't know and it is kind of scary if you think about it you know they're calling this entity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know what happens and a lot of a lot of good things can happen you know mom and dad could get linked to substance abuse treatment that they didn't know about but you know you're not going to see that on the cover of a newspaper uh and so i think a lot more education about what does happen maybe profiling some success stories because someone made the call you know this is what's happening in this child's life now and you know it's it's a positive outcome so i think i think there are some nuggets to explore to kind of shift shift that perspective that that are fairly doable too which is kind of exciting you know related to that one of the things that uh, speaking of surprises that surprised me is I remember when this first came out and the, the, the findings were surprising in that people thought that CPS are automatic mm-hmm. um, kid snatchers, essentially, right. <laughs> which is the last perception anyone wants. Right. And, you know, Child Protective Services has such an incredibly challenging job and um, and often is only in the media eye in the context of something negative like a child abuse fatality or something like that. And and it seemed to me this was a real opportunity for uh, CPS at the state level, really, to do some education to sort of turn that around because public perception is just, in many ways, it's so erroneous, but it's also just not good. And it is continually fed by... Um, these sort of stories that keep coming out. And so the surprising thing to me was that instead of sort of picking that up and openly combating it by having, you know, even public awareness campaigns around what happens when you make a report mm-hmm. and and really positing caseworkers in a positive and helpful light, it's almost like, and not because of this research, but just in general, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little bit of a bunker mentality. You know, if we just keep our heads down, yeah. then, then maybe it'll go away. And I really worry about, um, I really worry about that. I mean, I don't think just keeping our heads down and continuing to give caseworkers, you know, the hardest job on the multidisciplinary team, perhaps, and then not really helping people understand their role is going to get us anywhere on this issue. We've got to find some way to address that. And I feel like state government needs to be involved in that. I would, I would totally agree with that. Um, one of the exciting nuggets that did come out of this research was, and this was this one of it, this example of synergy. So, you know, we were conducting this research and then there was an agency in New Hampshire that was realizing that um, they needed to do more um for, for exactly this issue, for the public awareness. The Granite State Children's Alliance was kind of taking on this issue. And when they found out about this research, they reached out to me and really wanted to incorporate, you know, the findings, especially with some of the, the findings around barriers, into their um, know and tell child abuse public responsibility uh, projects. And so I think it is important for, like you said, for state agencies to, to help take this on and not to just, you know, go go with their business, go along with their business as they always have been. But I think I think there have been some shifts. Um, Pennsylvania has been doing some really innovative um, uh, programs to help educate people. And I do think you're right. I think the whole environment, the lens, the Me Too, the Me Too movement has shifted the bar. And it would be interesting to um, to do some kind of 
review now because the climate is different, and I think more agencies might be more willing to um, to explore what 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 they could do to uh, to help educate people on the, on these topics. When you're thinking about this kind of public awareness and sort of community consciousness raising, even uh-huh. on these issues. What have you seen that are some of the very most innovative things out there that CEC should be paying attention to? You've, you know, you've noted too. Are there any other things where you go, gosh, if we could have more of that, that's what we'd want to see? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, unfortunately, not a lot comes to my mind. Um, it could be out there. I just, I don't have it at the, you know, the grasp of my tongue right now. There's, um, but like I said, I think. I think the climate is there, given the the post Me Too movement. Um, I think the cli- it's we're at a different point now, and uh, I really believe that some some programs will start to um, percolate up. Uh, I'm not sure what that that will look like yet, but I do think I am optimistic uh, about that. Well, one of the things that you know we've been working on in our own public awareness campaign, which I didn't think until this moment we got into this conversation may tie to this a little bit, though, is you know when we launched our Shine campaign Shine, in yes. the mo- yep. month of April, one of the th- reasons that we did that and the way that we did it is we wanted to show that the end of this long journey, which does have lots of system involvement many times, and many multidisciplinary professionals are a part of that, and many systems are a part of that, can be very positive and people can thrive from that. And I'm, you know, now you're making me think about, you know, in our next year of messaging, because this is a multi-year campaign, is there some way to tie these messages Mm -hmm. um, around that? Because I think we don't often see that, you know, publicly. We don't see that there are adults out there who went through a Children's Advocacy Center. They may very well have had CPS involvement. They may very well have had a criminal case. And at the end of the day, they're leading these healthy, thriving lives because of the intervention that occurred for them. Exactly. And then they might have found out about additional services that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. They went to the CAC, you know, they found out about something else that helped them, you know, a year later, they're still connected with an additional support service. Um, and again, I think that's just people that doesn't come to mind when you think about you know, having an allegation of sexual abuse or child abuse that you could be, something good could could result from that. Right, right. So when you think about the lack of federal dollars for research in the space, I feel like it has been really challenging over the last, I mean, I don't even know how long, but for a while now. Yes. Honestly, um, to find research dollars in this area, let's say the CDC's, you know, violence prevention section uh, suddenly had 25 million new dollars to spend on something that was child abuse related um, in, in terms of research. What would they what should they spend it on? What should be their research priorities? Well, I mean, I do think it is important to think about prevention because you really get, you know, the most for your dollars there. So evaluating, you know, some of the um, prevention programs that are out there, you know, like this, what they're doing in New Hampshire, this public awareness, um, really focusing on um, our, we know that there's some innovative programs out there linking families to services, you know, early on in their lives. And just, we just need to evaluate who, who's being helped and how, just so we can do a better job to replicate, um, you know, the, the successful programs that are out there, I would say that um, would be one, one area to, to start at. 
Well, assuming that the CDC doesn't get this windfall, uh, <laughs> which, you know, I hope, I truly hope they do get some windfall mm-hmm. on one of these days or somebody does. I know. Um, but the other thing that I'm wondering is how can CACs on a smaller scale, how, how could or should they go about partnering with researchers to look at so, some of those issues at a, at a community level or in some cases, if they can get a large enough cohort, um, at a state level in the way that, as you're saying, New Hampshire did with no intel. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think um, I think it is sometimes easier than uh, what a lot of practitioners have in mind. You know, I mean, I've worked with a whole range of practitioners over many, many years. And a lot of times people are, you know, really reluctant to measure certain things because they're concerned about with, with you know, I understand secondary traumatization, but... Um, but it's um, the, there can be a lot of positive outcomes just from participating in research. When we've done research studies with um, caregivers and also victims, you know, many times at the end of the survey we ask, um, you know, was it important to participate in this research? Would you participate again, knowing what the questions mm-hmm, were? Mm-hmm. And it's remarkable, you know. And these are actually people, you know, after having been at a CAC, they say yes, you know, it's really important to participate in research and they really appreciated that someone was asking about them and they you know and so I think um it's just really important to get that word out that um it's very important to to conduct research to figure out how we can improve you know improve these systems well you ask a you you raised kind of an interesting point because um on a completely different partnership that we're involved in mm-hmm. um sort of a research partnership one of the things that um folks including myself were advocating for was the inclusion of some adult survivors in looking at the messaging around that. And what was so interesting is the particular university, essentially their response was, and I, I couldn't tell and don't remember, and I don't want to misrepresent this. I don't remember if the concern was, because it was federally funded, from the federal government or whether it was the concern was from their own IRB board. But there was a lot of reluctance around the idea of asking adult survivors about that Mm -hmm. for the reason that you're indicating, like this fear that it would trigger um, a a traumatic response Mm -hmm. or something of that nature. And I'm just wondering, you know, what do you find? Because you all are often partnering, um, you know, with federal government agencies and research. And also, you know, of course, everything has to go through your own IRB board. Do you find that those are sometimes barriers that you run into? At times, and it is um, dependent on particular um, agencies, um, particular IRBs at those agencies, or who you know who they're working with in the community. So we do face those, um, but it's very—it's not universal, and it, I would say it's very variable. Uh, but. Um, many, you know, many times we don't encounter that. And like I, like I was just saying, when, when we are able to have those collaborations, the, the feedback is just, it's just really just overwhelming positive, Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And invaluable, you know, in terms of crafting these messages. You know, one of the things I was also thinking about was, as you said, the study itself that we were referencing earlier was done 
um, in a state that has sort of universal mandatory reporting, essentially. Right. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether states should go that direction or not. And every time there's a large institutional abuse case, I feel like we're back in that dialogue about does it make more sense to have universal mandatory reporting or to continue to have a sort of set list like all the rest of the states do that identify a set list of professionals who have that. And of course, everyone can report, but only this subset are required to. Is the research really there to tell us one way or another on that question yet? Unfortunately, not yet. This again, like I was saying earlier, there's a real dearth of research that looks at different reporting policies. Um, and so we we don't really know um, what the answer to that question is. Um, yeah, there's just been two two studies that have looked at that, but there was some um, it's not conclusive. We can't we don't we don't have a conclusive finding about which way should states go for that, I would say. You know, it's interesting because since we do have states that have a range of identified mandatory reporters, and Mm -hmm. then we do have this block of them with universal mandatory reporting, it seems like it would be the perfect, you know, research opportunity Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) to to really look at that if only there were the federal funding to do so, because you have a large enough block in, in both camps, essentially, to to see what difference it does actually make um, potentially if the if the research was done and the money was there to do it. So so beyond raising awareness, though, when you think about the findings of the research that you all did and also any any other that you're aware of, what changes do you think would be helpful in policy or in laws that would better support uh, quality reporting and and identifying child abuse and taking action? Um, well, the other piece of this research is we did conduct um, a study, an online study with child serving professionals to ask them a whole range of questions. You know, what was your experience like when you made a report um, and ask them about improvements? And one thing I would say um, would be helpful. We know that um, CPS agencies are really, you know, under budgeted and understaffed. And because of that, you know, in many, many circumstances, we heard that it's not surprisingly really frustrating when a physician, you know, calls or an educator calls, they want to make this report. And then they might be put on, I mean, we heard horror stories, they're put on hold, no one calls them back, they can't make the report, um, just a lot of frustrations with um, with the system that really, I think, is linked to just, you know, not enough budgeting for to really mm-hmm. have a comprehensive um, response system. Um, we heard frustrations with, you know, lack of triage. Uh, so I think, yeah, you need to educate people about the reporting system, but you also need to have, um, you know, a comprehensive agency response that's timely, that's consistent. Uh, we heard a lot of frustrations that when people call, um, different things happen based on, you know, who answered that the phone. And so um, I would say a lot um, more needs to be done to have a more comprehensive response when someone when someone makes a call. I mean, just to a very general. Again, this was a very kind of glossing over a lot of things but um but that would be the other area i would i would say needs needs some improvement 
Yeah, I, I think that question of organizational capacity mm-hmm. and, you know, the use of technology and having enough people to actually right. you know, take the reports and, and then the whole workforce uh, training piece to make sure that the folks who are who are screening those calls are really um, have the knowledge and exactly. skill set that they need to be successful at their job. One of the interesting things, uh, speaking of innovations that's happened more recently in our field is there are now started out in Tennessee, but there are now I think two other states that are receiving um, the intake reports that essentially match the screening criteria to come into the CACs in that state. So it it just happens to align that there's state legislation defining what types of cases CACs should get. And at the same time, there's been this move to send um, all the reports that uh, meet those screening criteria to the CACs directly. Uh-huh. So without there being any further triage, those kinds of things. And CACs then uh, have used that information to see what kids are following through the cracks. Like, you know, here's one that would meet our criteria. Why haven't I gotten the phone call to schedule the interview? Uh-huh. And what's been very interesting about that, Tennessee has been doing that now for a number of years, but Texas is a more recent addition to that. Um, there's another state, and I don't want to misname the state, so I, I won't try to name one here, but has looked at that as well. And one of the things they found was a dramatic increase in their caseload hmm. from having that because they were catching kids right and left that met their criteria that were not getting to them. Uh-huh. And I don't think it was that anyone was intentionally trying to screen these kids out. It was just not really knowing and understanding enough about the range of services the CAC offers, the actual criteria, like all of the things you would need to know in order to say this kid definitely should be scheduled for an interview Mm -hmm. at a CAC. And so it just, there's a question in my mind about if we did that in all 50 states, you know, what would we find, <laughs> right, right? I know. Um, and what's our own capacity to, to keep up with the demand that would be engendered? Because I know that Texas has done a wonderful job of really um, talking to their state legislature and getting more resources to try to keep up with that demand. But there was an enormous gap in the first year between the flood of kids coming in and the resources oh, they I'm really sure. had. Um, to respond to that. And so I, I think this is an area that the more we delve into it, the the more work there honestly is going to be to do and also the more resources we're going to need to do it. So if you were, you know, if you, if you were talking to CACs across the country as you are now on this podcast and you said, okay, there's one takeaway from this conversation and this piece of research that I'd like you to take back to your prevention efforts, not only in April, but year round, what would it be? Um, I would think it would be important for CACs to think about whether they are, again, sharing some of those success, success stories with the larger, their larger community. I think a lot of CACs do a great job, you know, telling their board, getting, um, sharing to their funders about, you know, what happens after a child and family comes to the CAC. But I would, I'm just curious. I think there's a range. I think some CACs are doing a fantastic job, but even, you know, even if you're not one of these big, you know, huge CACs, I think there is a role and you could figure out how to share, you know, some of the success stories to to that that larger community just to help educate people um, 
you know, what, what happens at the CAC. Well, Wendy, I could talk to you the rest of the day <laughs> about this because I find this data all just so interesting. But, you know, I know you don't have the rest of the day either. So I just want to thank you for joining us. I know that uh, Children's Advocacy Center professionals and the whole multidisciplinary team will benefit so much from our conversation. So thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Teresa. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode where we'll talk to law professor and former prosecutor Mary Graw Leary about why institutional abuse scandals happen. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.